T to blame for his father's meanness. That's the right way to talk. The old soldier agreed. Well, if you'll feel that way about it, I reckon there's no harm in my telling you the rest of it. Now that I've got started, when the war was all over and I got that high, I remembered what had happened, and I sent word to Isaac Houtful that I didn't trust him, and after what he had done I was reckoning that he was waiting his chance to get me, and that he'd better keep his own side o' the mountain. But, Uncle Eli, said the boy, that didn't make a feud surely, that was only a warning. I wasn't reckoning to start a feud at all, said the old man thoughtfully, and it really never was one. It was Jay's a personal difference between Isaac Houtle and me. There was lots o' times that I could have picked off either o' his two brothers, but I was Jay's garden myself against Isaac. But you said he got there first, said the boy. Did he shoot someone in your family? Well, yes, he did. The mountaineer admitted, y'all never knew the one. He was my brother-in-law, Abby's young sister's first husband. He had been married Jay's two months and was only a hundred yards from this house when Isaac shot him. How did you know for sure that it was Houtle who had done the shooting? Asked Hamilton. We didn't know for sure. At first, a week or two after, a boy from the Wilshies place come up with a message saying that Isaac Houtle had told him to say that he'd get the OL man next time. I shouldn't have thought a boy would have had the nerve to bring such a message, said Hamilton thoughtfully. Wouldn't bringing word like that look like taking sides? And wouldn't it bring his own family into the trouble? The old man shook his head in instant denial. Pro white trash from the gullies, he said. Mumber they don't count one way or the other. What happened after you got that message? Asked the boy. Nothing much. For a while, though I was snooping around the mountains considerable, I met the brothers several times, and I know they could have had me. But I had nothing against them, nor they me. And so it was Jay's left to Isaac and me. Once I found him over near our pasture, but he saw me and got into cover. At last I found him in the open near our house again, and in easy range. Did you fire right away? Asked Hamilton excitedly. I didn't shoot. I got a lead on him. Sure, but I Jays couldn't shoot without warning him. It seemed kind o' mean to shoot him in a wares, and as I didn't want to take an unfair advantage, I shouted to him. It was pretty far off to be heard. But I could see that he recognized me. I was only waiting long enough to let him get his gun to his shoulder when someone fired Jay's beating me. Houtle's bullet went through my arm, but he dropped in his tracks. He thought I had shot him but my gun was never fired off. Who was it that fired? Uncle Eli, the brother of the young fellow he had shot before. Was he dead? Asked the boy. Waddle, said the mountaineer, a little grimly. I didn't go down to see on waiter until all his friends gathered, but I reckon he was dead when they found him later, and the brothers, they never came into the story at all, I'm Jay's meant I on in this to y'all to show y'all that bar's reason in my advising y'all to keep claro this district, if you're reckoning on doing census work, you'll go somewhere that you're not known to anyone, bar's trouble enough even for a stranger in the mountains, and a stranger would find it easier than anyone else, why is that? Uncle Eli, asked the boy, in the first place, you can't show discourtesy to a stranger, and you'll know that if he doesn't do things Jay's the way you'll like to have him done, it's because he does know, and so he's not to blame, I like your spirit about the census, Hamilton, the old mountaineer continued, and if you can give the government any service, I reckon you'll better try, but leave the mountain districts either to popular favorites or to a stranger, 
Chapter II Rescuing a Lost Race That Same Evening As it chanced, one of the younger Welsh boys came up to the house on an errand from a neighbor, and Hamilton, remembering that the messenger's father had been a go-between in the feud story he had been hearing, noted the lad with interest. Indeed, his appearance was striking enough in itself, with his drooping form, his extreme paleness, and his look of exhaustion. How far is it from the burdens, Uncle Eli? asked Hamilton. Eight miles, was the reply. Hamilton stared at the mountain boy. Judging from his looks he was not strong enough to walk a hundred yards, yet he had just come eight miles, and evidently was intending to walk back home that evening. Then Hamilton remembered that this lad was one of the poor whites of whom he had read so much, and he strolled toward the messenger who was sitting listlessly on one of the steps. Howdy, said the newcomer in a tired voice. Hamilton answered his greeting, and, after a few disjointed sentences, said, You look tired. It must be a long walk from the Burdens, Jay's plausible. The boy answered, I'm not so tired. You left in the city? He queried a few minutes later, evidently noting the difference between Hamilton's appearance and that of the boys in the neighborhood. Yes, New York, answered Hamilton. But the stranger did not show any further curiosity and Hamilton was puzzled to account for his general listlessness. He thought perhaps it might be that the boy was unusually dull and so he asked, are you still going to school? A negative shake of the head was the only reply. Why not? Isn't there a school near where you live? Close handy. About five miles, was the reply. Then why don't you go there? Questioned Hamilton further. Teacher's gone. Funny time for holidays. The city boy remarked. Not gone f-o holidays. Oh, I see. Said Hamilton. You mean he's gone for good. But aren't you going to have another one? Dunno if he's gone for good, the mountain boy answered. Hamilton stared in bewilderment. Conjure got him, the other continued. But this did not explain things any better. Conjure, repeated Hamilton. You mean magic? The mountain boy nodded. Yes, conjure, he affirmed. You're fooling, aren't you? Said Hamilton questioningly. You can't mean it. I never heard of conjure as a real thing. There's lots about it in books, of course. But those are fairy tales and things of that sort. And y'all never saw a conjure? Of course not. Reckon they don't know as much in cities as they think they do. The youngster retorted. Just what do you mean by conjure? Asked Hamilton. Knowing that it would be useless to argue the conditions of a modern city with a boy who had never seen one. Being able to put a conjure on. So's the one yo conjure has got to do anything yo want. Sort of hypnotism business. Commented the older boy. Know what you'll call it in the city. Up high in the mountains we call it conjure. And are some slick ones high, too. But how did the teacher get mixed up in it? Queried Hamilton. It doesn't sound like the sort of thing you'd expect to find a schoolmaster doing. He wasn't doing it. It was again him. The mountain boy explained. The folks high suspicioned as he was dipping oh the revenue men. Who did? Moonshiners? Easy on that word. Hamilton. Suddenly broke in the old Kentuckian who had overheard part of the conversation. Bars plenty up high that don't like it. All right, Uncle Eli, I'll remember. The boy answered, then, turning to his companion. He continued, you were saying that some of the people in the mountains thought the schoolmaster was giving information to the revenue men. Some said he was. I don't believe it myself. And most of us boys didn't believe it. But then the teacher was allers mighty good to us. Did the revenue officers come up here? The mountain lad nodded his head. Often, 
he said, and when they come to the stills they seem to know everything and everybody, and then someone told that it could be proved on the teacher. It never was, but there was a plenty of people who believed the story, I didn't, but then the teacher was always good to me. But what did the revenue men have to do with the conjuring? Asked Hamilton, desiring to keep his informant to the point. They didn't. It was the men on the ridge. Do you know how it happened? I know all about it. The lad answered, with a slightly less listless air. For I was in school that morning. For a week or more we boys had seen Noel Black of Baldwin sort of snooping around near the school. But as we allers crossed our fingers and said nothing so long as he was in hearing, we weren't afraid. What did you do that for? The younger boy looked at the city-bred lad with an evident pity for his ignorance. Illustration, moon shining. Revenue officers hot on the trail, the fire is burning, the still working, and the moonshiner's coat hangs on a tree. Brown brothers, so's he couldn't conjure us. Of course, he said. Don you even know that? Well Black Baldwin is a first-class conjure, and any one of them can conjure you with the words he hears you saying. But if this conjure fellow was hanging around the school, suggested Hamilton, why didn't you tell the master, and get blacked down on us? You all can bet we kept quiet and didn't even talk about blacket to each other. Well, that went on for a week or two. Then, one morning, while we was all in school, a big storm come up, thunder and lightning and all. Suddenly, Jay's after a clap of thunder that sounded almost as if it had hit the schoolhouse O.L. Black Baldwin walked through the door and up to the teacher's table. He was carrying a twisted thing in his hand, like a ram's horn, and I knew it was his conjuring horn, although I hadn't even seen it before. What did the master say when he came in? Nary a word. It was awful dark and the thunder was rumbling around among the hills. I took one look at O.L. Black Baldwin's face, and then hid my eyes. I reckon the others did the same. Why? His face was all shiny with a queer green light. Sending up smoke. Like O.L. Dadwood does sometimes after a rain. Phosphorus evidently. Muttered Hamilton to himself. But he did not want to interrupt the lad now that he had started. And therefore did not discuss the point. He walked right up to the teacher's table. Continued the younger boy. And he pointed the horn at him. According to one of the boys who says he was peeping through his fingers. I wasn't looking, I wasn't talking any chances, and then we all heard him say to the teacher, you are going to have a fall and be killed, you are going to have a fear of falling all your days, and you are going to be drove to places where you're like to fall, by night you are going to dream of falling, and, waking and sleeping, the fear is laid upon you, and that was all, that was all, the mountain boy replied, after a bit, I looked up and O.L. Black Baldwin was gone, the teacher looked peaked and seemed kind of scared, but he didn't say anything. Well, it was a little scary, said Hamilton. I don't wonder it shook him up. That was only the beginning. The storyteller went on. About half an hour after that, one of the boys dropped his slate pencil on the floor and it broke. So he asked the teacher for a new one. The slates and pencils was kept on a shelf over the teacher's chair, and he got on the chair to reach one down. We was all watching him. When suddenly he gave a groan and his eyes rolled back so's we couldn't see nothing but the whites, his face got all pale, and his lips sort o' blue, he reeled in was Jay's going to fall when he sort o' made a grab at the shelf and hung on as though he was falling off a cliff. Two of the bigger boys, thinking he had a stroke or something, went up and spoke, but he didn't answer. Jay's hung on to that shelf, standing on the chair as he was, 
Of course the boys couldn't make him let go, and they couldn't make him hear or understand a mite. So they pulled up a bench and one of them climbed up and forced his hand open. Jay's like a flash T.J. grabbed him so hard that he yelled, just with one hand. Hamilton queried, one hand, waddle. They pretty soon made T.J. let go the other hand, and helped him down it far on the chair and sat him down in it. As soon as his feet touched the floor, he let go the feller's shoulder and sort of lay back in his chair. He sat there for a bit and then he leaned forward, put his hands on the desk, and stared right in front of him. Jay's as if we w a single quote and single quote either at all. I thought I was fallen, he said gruffly. We waited a while for him to begin aging, but he Jay's sit there, looking straight in front of him, and repeating every minute or two, I thought I was fallen. I thought I was fallen. Hamilton shivered a little, for the mountain boy told the story as though he were living through the scene again. I don't wonder you got scared, he said. Did he come to? Not right then. The boy answered. We waited a while and then some of the fellers got up and went out softly. I went, too, and the teacher never even seemed to see us go. Didn't you think he had gone crazy? We all knew it was conjuring. The lad rejoined, and when we got outside the door there was a well black Baldwin waiting. Looking Jay's the same as usual. As I come by, he said. Jay's as smooth. School's out early today. Boys. But I don't think any of us answered him. I know I didn't. I Jay's took and run as hard as I knew how. And when I got to the top of the hill and looked back. And saw Black going into the schoolhouse again. I couldn't get home fast enough. Was that what broke up the school? Not right away. The other replied. There was some that never come nigh the place aging. But before two weeks most of us was back. T.J. Allers seemed different. Every once in a while. One of us would see him walking on the edge of a cliff. Or fin him dizzily hanging on to something for fear o' falling. How long did that go on? Queried Hamilton. About a month. I reckon. And T.J. was in trouble more and more all the time. Because folks wouldn't have him board and ruin. Same's he'd allers done. Why not? Waddle. He'd wake up in the night screaming. I'm fallen. I'm fallen. And no one wanted to have a haunted teacher in the house. And Black Baldwin. He jays hung around the school. And we all would see him every day. Muttering and laughing to himself. Then. Suddenly. Teacher disappeared. And though we hunted F.O. him every war. He wasn't found. We all reckoned he had fallen some wars. But I'd thought since that the single quote or single quote APS he jays went away. Going back to the city. And leaving no tracks so's to make O.L. Black of Baldwin believe he'd been killed. That sounds likely enough. Hamilton said. But even if he did get away. I don't believe that he'd want to come back. I reckon not. The mountain boy agreed. Anyway. The school's shut up now. How about the revenue men? Asked Hamilton. They haven't been here since T.J. went away. Was the reply. And I reckon they're not wanted. The boy stopped short as the old mountaineer came over to where he was squatting and gave him a long answer to the message he had brought. The old man read it to him from a sheet of paper on which he had penciled it roughly. Bill Walsh listened in a dreamy way, and Hamilton wondered at his seeming carelessness. The old man read it twice. Then, rising to his feet, the boy repeated it word for word and without so much as a nod to Hamilton, slouched off in a long, lazy stride that looked like loafing but which, as Hamilton afterwards found out, covered the ground rapidly. Do you suppose he'll remember all that, Uncle Eli? Asked Hamilton in surprise. He, oh, yes, the mountaineer replied, 
word for word, syllable for syllable that island F.O. today. He must have a good memory, the boy exclaimed, I'm sure I couldn't, but he'll forget every word by tomorrow. The other continued, almost forget that he was high today at all. That's why they're so hard to teach, those polites. What they learn doesn't stick. I heard him telling you about the disappearance of the last teacher. Yes, he was putting it down to conjuring. Is there much of that sort of idea in the mountains? None among the mountainers proper, replied the old man. Some of the polites down in the gullies talk about it. But far is a no difference between the folks in the gullies and on the ridge th and there is between the mountains and the blue grass. They are different, and they look different, too. Bill Walsh certainly does, agreed Hamilton. But I thought at first it was because he was tired out with a long walk after a day's work. The Kentucky shook his head. They're all that way, he said. They jays look all beaten out as if they hadn't any life left in them at all. I reckon the most o' them have hookworm, too. And they just look fit to drop. Hookworm. Uncle Eli, what is that? Asked the boy. It's a queer kind o' disease. The old man answered. That comes from going barefoot. There's a kind o' grub in the soil. And it works its way and it's only jays recently that it's been found out that the polites are peaked and backward because they're sick. And now they know it cure for it. Why hookworm is being driven right out o' the south. Was there so much of it? Outteen an end to it will make useful American citizens out o' thousands o' poor crippers that never knew what ailed them. But where did the poor whites come from? Uncle Eli, what made them that way? Or they come from I jays done rightly no. I reckon I saw more o' them when I was down in Georgia. But the Florida crackers are still worse off. Bars not so many in the mountains and those that are here live way up in the gullies. The Chernoff whites, or crackers as they call them, belong to the pine belt, between the mountains and the swamps o' the coast. Why are they called crackers? I don't know. Unless because they live on cracked corn and razorback hog. It ain't so easy to say how they begun. Bar is a lot o' French names. And bar is a tradition that two shiploads o' Huguenots were erect off Georgia in the early days and found their way inland. Settling down without anything to start with, and not knowing for a generation or two or any settlements could be foon. And bar is a lot o' folks that have just drifted down, down, living jays like the crackers and often taken to be the same. And the slavery system made it worse because bar was no middle white class either rich or poe. Bar was nothing between that island down in that part o' the country. But y'all muse remember that bar has been a great change in the last twenty years and that the children o' cracker families are doing jays as well as anybody in the South. How is that, Uncle Eli? Well, in the days before the war, the pro-whites were jays trash. The planters wouldn't have em, because the slaves did all the work, they wouldn't work themselves, and they didn't own slaves, so they were worse off than the Negroes and even the black race looked down on em. But the war waked them up. They all fought for the South, didn't they? M.O.S.'sly all. They were to food F.O. powder, but I always reckon they hindered more in they helped, for the cracker. However, the war meant everything. It placed him side by side with the southern gentlemen. It strengthened the color line, and Jay's enough of them made good to show the others bar was a chance F.O. them, too. Then they started in to improve right after the war, did they? The Kentucky shook his head negatively. Mumber, he said. At first they were far worse off than before because the Freedmen's Bureau and the carpetbaggers made trouble right and left. The North had a fine chance. But the carpetbaggers were jays blind to everything except the Negro. 
and the pro-white was Jays as shabbily treated by the North as he had been by the South. Now that everybody is seeing that you can't make a Negro Jays the same as a white man by giving him a vote, there is a chance F.O. the pro-white. I reckon the cracker as a cracker is going to be extinct pretty soon, and the South is going to be proud of the stock it once despised. Atlanta is the fastest growing city in the South, and Atlanta is Jays full of men whose folks were much more in crackers. The pro-white, in a few years, is going to be only a memory like the backwoodsman of the time of Daniel Boone, that promises well for the South, said Hamilton. The boom of the South is Jays beginning, the old man said, and if you're going to do census work this next year, you'll Jays watch the figures and see where the old South comes in it's a pity you're going back to wash single quote and single quote on tomorrow, as I think you'll ought to see more of this country before you'll go, I'd like to, ever so much. Uncle Eli, the boy answered, as he got up from the step and started for the big loft where he slept with the mountaineers' two sons. But, even if I don't get a chance, I've learned a lot from you about the folk on the mountains and about the South generally. The mountaineer nodded a good night as the boy disappeared. Now bar, he said to his wife, who had been knitting stockings during the latter part of the conversation, and occasionally interjecting a word. Bar is a boy that is really aching to know things. I wish Rube and if word are more like him. Nothing but hounds and vittles worries them. The woman replied sharply. But they ain't done like city boys. And I'd rather have em the way they air than to come pestering with questions like Hamilton does you. I don't set any sort of stock in it. And I don't encourage him in such nonsense. The big Kentuckian smiled. And filled his corn cob leisurely as he turned the talk to other things. Early the next morning. Hamilton and the oldest of the two boys started on their 14-mile ride to the station, where the lad was to take an afternoon train for Washington. They had gone about three miles, when they came upon Bill Walsh sitting on the stump of a tree by the roadside. I reckon you all would come along this way, he said, and I've been thinking Maureen more about each a having likely gone to the city, and not being dead after all. You'll go into the city now. I'm going to Washington. Bill, Hamilton answered. Is that the city? It's one of them. Do you suppose that'd be the city T.J.A. went to? I couldn't say. Bill, the lad replied, there's no way of knowing, but it's likely enough. I was thinking, the mountain boy began and he broke off suddenly. I'm mighty partial to Whitlin. He continued irrelevantly. The best ever, interjected Hamilton's companion. You ought to have shown him some of your work. Bill, I was always hoping T.J.A. would come back, said the boy in his listless passionless way, and he seemed so fond o' the school that I whittled a piece to give him when he showed up aging, but now I reckon he ain't going to come back, does you all reckon he'll come back from the city, Hamilton looked down at the lad, and wanted to cheer him up, but he could not see what would be likely to bring the schoolmaster back, and so he answered, I'm afraid not, Bill, but he might, you know, I reckon not, but I'd like him to know he ain't forgotten in the mountains, I want y'all to tell him that far and been a week since he went away that I ain't been down to the school and sweep the floor and seen that his books was in the place he liked to have MB. I wouldn't want him to come back from his wandering, if he still is wandering, and think he was forgotten. It ain't much, I know, to sweep a floor, he added, looking up to Hamilton, but you'll tell him and he'll understand. It's about all that I can do. He'll understand if you'll tell him. Neither of the other boys spoke. And after a moment the mountain lad went on, and when you see him, give him this, and tell him it comes from Bill, his dry and scholar, 
He used to call me that because, although I wasn't learning much, I was always trying, and you can tell him I'm trying still. Reaching his hand into the bosom of his ragged shirt the boy pulled out a slab of wood four inches square. It was carved as a bass relief, showing the schoolhouse in the foreground in high relief, with the wooded hills beyond. That's great, exclaimed Hamilton. I don't believe I ever saw better carving than that anywhere. A momentary gleam of pleasure flashed into the boy's dull eyes, but he went on again in the same lifeless voice. Bar is the schoolhouse jays as it was when he was here last. But it's never looked the same to me since. I want you to give this to him and show him, if you will, that I whittled it with the door open. Jay's to show him we are looking for him back. But supposing I shouldn't meet him in the city? Queried Hamilton gently. Washington is a large place and there are many other cities. I reckon you all have a more chance of finding him are than I have high. I reckon he ain't going to come back high. And then he'd never know that we ain't forgotten him. And he'd think we was ungrateful. But you'll try and find him. Hamilton was conscious of the lump in his throat at the simple faithfulness of the mountain boy. And he said gently, Very well, Bill, if you feel that way about it, of course I'll try. But you haven't told me his name as yet. I was thinking of that. The boy answered. Then he took from his pocket a homemade gumwood case. And opening it, took out a small piece of paper and handed it to Hamilton. Be careful of it. He said, That paper tears mighty easy. Hamilton smoothed the paper out on the palm of his hand, and looked at it carefully. It was a copy, merely of politics, done in lead pencil, the strokes wavering and of differing slopes, and the whole so smudged as scarcely to be recognizable but, down in the corner, written in ink, in a firm, bold hand, word are the words, very good, Gregory Sinclair. Hamilton copied the name into his notebook and, refolding the paper as carefully as possible in the same folds, he handed it to the barefooted boy standing on the road beside his horse's head. Did you all read it? He asked. Yes, said Hamilton. Did you all see that he said very good? Very good was what was written, agreed Hamilton, thinking of the wavering and smudged politics. I see and do better now, the boy said quietly, and I've been trying jays as hard as though T.J. was in yonder schoolhouse, but there's no one to write very good on M any M.O., and I reckon there ain't going to be. But I'm trusting that you'll thin him and you'll tell him that he ain't forgotten. Without a word of farewell, the boy struck into the woods and was lost to sight. The two lads started on their way. But they had not ridden a hundred yards when they heard a hail, looking back. They saw the mountain boy standing on a point of the ridge, and echoing down to them came the lonely cry, Thin him, and tell him he ain't forgotten. Chapter III Manufactory of Rifle settling himself comfortably in the train for his long journey to the capital. One of the first things that Hamilton did was to take from his pocket the little carving that had been given him by the mountain lad and put it away carefully in his grip. Examining it closely as he did so, the boy was astonished to note the fineness of the work, and he realized that it must have taken Bill Wilsh all the spare moments of the long winter to finish it. The work was all the more surprising, Hamilton thought, since it had been done just with a single tool, a common pocket knife and was yet as fine and delicate as though carved with a set of costly tools. He made up his mind to buy a set and send them to Bill Wilsh with the first pay that he got from his Census Bureau work. Seated across the aisle from him was another lad about his own age, with whom Hamilton rather wanted to make acquaintance, but the opportunity did not arrive until the first meal, when, by chance, 
they found themselves on opposite sides of one of the small tables in the dining car. The usual courtesies of the table led to conversation, in the course of which Hamilton's companion dropped the word, census, in a manner which showed his familiarity with the progress of the work of preparation. Are you interested in the census? asked Hamilton promptly. Rather, the other replied, I'm going to work in the bureau. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to Washington to get my appointment now. You are, exclaimed Hamilton. Why, that's exactly what I'm doing. It's queer we should meet this way. Are you going as an assistant special agent, too? His new friend asked. I'm going to start in that way. The boy replied, how do you mean start? The other queried. I understand that work on the manufacturers will last three or four months, and by that time all the other census taking will be over. I'm going to try to get some of the population work as well, Hamilton explained. I think it will be even more fun than the manufacturer's end, and I heard that they're going to put on a few population enumerators from those who have been on the manufacturer's work, admitting them without an exam. I think the population census gathering will be fine. The other boy shook his head. I don't think I'd want it, he said, at least not in a city, and I'm going to do the manufacturing work. Of course, in a city. Where are you going to be? Asked Hamilton. I took the exam in Frisco. The older boy replied, that's my hometown, and I expect to work out there. That's quite a walk from here, exclaimed Hamilton. I had to come to Washington. The boy answered, and so my people wanted me to go and see my sister down in Florida. She married a fellow who's busy reclaiming some swamp land down there, and he promised me a try at alligator hunting. That sounds prime, suggested Hamilton, and I should think that in that reclamation work there would be lots of chance for it. It would be worth watching, too, just to see how they got at that work. I should think they would find themselves up against a pretty stiff job, engineering down in those swamps. And then there must be barrels of snakes, too. Illustration, alligator catching. The sport at its best, tackling a fair-sized rectal with their hands. Courtesy of outing magazine. Water moccasins and copperheads mostly, said his friend cheerfully. But you soon get so used to them that you don't mind them. It's very seldom that you ever hear of anyone being bitten by a snake. They all seem more anxious to get out of your way than you out of theirs. And you're anxious enough, too. Remarked Hamilton. That's pretty good security, don't you think? Queried the older boy with a laugh. When both sides want to get away, there's not much chance of a meeting. But how about the alligators? That was real good.